This forum is part of the City Club's Criminal Justice Series, sponsored by the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. We're grateful for their generous support. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Maltrop, chief executive here and a proud member. Today's Friday, June 18th, and we're here for another virtual City Club forum live from the studios of our partner, IdeaStream Public Media. Big thanks to them and, of course, congrats on the, the new branding. This is an important forum today. It's the inaugural Charles R.C. Forum on Reentry. Now, if you don't know Charles C., and I suspect actually that many of you do, for 44 years he worked to support and advocate for people returning to the community after incarceration. During his tenure at Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries, Mr. C. expanded Community Reentry Incorporated and helped to establish the innovative and nationally recognized Care Teams program, which trained citizens, returning citizens, for positions assisting older adults living in public housing. It's in Mr. C's honor that we partner with Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries to present our speaker today. It's Deanna Hoskins, and she'll be discussing a new approach to criminal justice reform and her own journey from incarceration to advocacy. Hoskins is president of Just Leadership USA, which has a goal of cutting the U.S. correctional population in half by 2030. We'll talk about how they do that work and how they've been doing it. Uh, Ms. Hoskins joined in 2018, and the organization is less than 10 years old. Hoskins is an Ohio native and nationally recognized uh, for the work that she's been doing for nearly two decades. I want to note, too, before we get started, that the federal government and much of the nation is celebrating Juneteenth today and tomorrow. It's a celebration of freedom, recognizing the end of chattel slavery two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, finally, news of the Emancipation Proclamation finally reached Galveston, Texas. And though our conversation today would be needed and necessary at any time, hosting it on Juneteenth, I think, brings a deeper and really important resonance. Now, as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. If you have a question, text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club if you are on Twitter. We'll try to work them in. Deanna Hoskins of Just Leadership USA, welcome to the City Club. Thank you, Dan. How are you? I'm great. It's so good to see you. Thank you for joining us uh, from Cincinnati, Southern Ohio. Um, it is, uh, it's wonderful to build these sort of cross-municipality, cross-geography kinds of conversations. Um, tell us about, I, I want to just jump right into the platform that Just Leadership USA has, uh, the advocacy platform that you've offered recently. There's a, a roadmap that Just Leadership put out um, encouraging the new federal administration, the new White House administration, uh, and others in the legislature as well to take on this issue of criminal justice reform. What's what what? It's a it's a big document. The roadmap has a lot in it. But why don't you start with the near term uh, pieces that you think can be implemented right away? Thank you, Dan. As you'll see, of course, just leadership being an organization that was founded by and operated by people who've been directly impacted by the criminal justice system, we were very strategic in our roadmap. What we knew is that upon this new administration and the way the House and the Senate was set up, we had about a 24-month run 
We know that when you start talking legislation to build champions, to get the legislation drafted, that that can take you up to 12 to 18 months. And we felt we don't have time to wait. So there are some actions that this administration can take that will actually be where the rubber hits the road, right? Mm -hmm. So we broke our roadmap down into those actionable items of short-term, mid-term, and long-term. We identified things that the president can literally do an executive action on um, around revitalizing the Federal Interagency Reentry Council, which is bringing all of those federal agencies back together so that they can look at their administrative rules that are creating barriers out in the community for people with criminal backgrounds. Of course, we're asking them to appoint a formerly incarcerated person into a position of leadership that helps direct and lead the criminal justice agenda within the White House. Another executive order, um, one of the things that most people don't know, we just partnered uh, with the organization and we're launching the People's First Campaign next week. And what the People's First Campaign is, it's around the utilization of humanizing language. The Obama administration had actually had an ex executive memo that the federal government could not use dehumanizing language. You had to use people-centered language in your grant solicitations, in your research documents. The last administration rescinded that. Um, that was right when I walked away from the federal government. When that memo was rescinded, that we had to go back to using dehumanizing language such as convict, felon, inmate. Another one we're asking them to do is to re- constitute the Office of Access to Justice, which they've already done um, three weeks ago. So we know that this administration is listening to those most impacted. They have actually reinstituted the Office of Access to Justice, which was originally created up under AG Holder um, to increase access to justice as an initiative. And it actually is around the um, the, they actually created what is called the Legal Aid Interagency Roundtables, where they actually work with legal aid agencies across the country and where some of that funding comes from. The last administration had dismantled that office as well. So we have gotten one of our short terms um, actually implemented. Then we moved to midterm administration um, reforms, and we broke it down by departments. One of the things that this, the last administration actually dismantled as well was the directive and the reinstatement, uh, we asked them to reinstate the Smart on Crime initiative. I don't know if you remember what in was 2018, that? I'm sorry, yeah, in 2018, um, First Step Act was taunted as the most progressive criminal justice reform, but then you had AG Sessions come behind First Step Act and mandate that the harshest penalties be used. It was totally in conjunction with what you were saying you were trying to do. So the directive, um, they not to use mandatory minimum sentences for low level drug convictions. Right. Um, Mr. Holder at the time had instructed pro prosecutors to omit details about drug quantities from charging documents that would not trigger those automatic harsh penalties. And what we just saw, the um, Supreme Court of the United States actually just challenged First Step Act for some, a gentleman who wanted to be resentenced on his crack conviction. And because um, his previous criminal activities was used, they overturned it and said First Step Act did not apply to people who had low-level crack charges. But the country thought that's what First Step Act was addressing, right? And the sec um, Supreme Court just overturned that and kind of just stepped on First Step Act to show its uselessness at this point. What First Step Act did do 
is protect white collar crimes and protect people who would be considered low risk to actually almost get a free ticket out of prison is what we saw during COVID. We saw the people who were released from prison were the people who were basically the president's friends, right? Um, Deanna, let me just interrupt for a second. Let me just jump in here for a second, remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking with Deanna Hoskins. She's president of Just Leadership USA, which is an advocacy organization that works on uh, shifting policy around uh, criminal justice issues and issues around reentry. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, if you have a question uh, about these issues, text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club and we'll work it into the program in the second half of the program. And I, I just wanted to mention that we have a link, if you're on Twitter, um, we have a link to this roadmap that we're talking about um, on our Twitter feed and it's on, on, on my Twitter feed too for what it's worth. Um, and it's really expansive. And I just want to, before we get too deep on the First Step Act and your critique of that, um, I just I wanted to come back to just point out that um, some of these areas here, the abolition of solitary confinement, a moratorium on, on the use of risk assessment tools, which is, uh, that's a, there's a nuance there that's really interesting. Um, and I mean, all sorts, of, all sorts of things in the midterm and then long-term legislation that you're advocating for that includes the, um, that includes the, the, reverse uh, a repeal and reversal of the 1994 crime bill and also eventually constitutional reform of the 13th amendment as well and ending felony disenfranchisement allowing returning citizens the opportunity to vote um there's a this is a very very comprehensive uh advocacy agenda um and i just want to point to the we should after we talk about the first step act i want to ask you a little bit about why policy why, why the focus on policy and not programs? Because I, I think that's an important distinction as well. But you were talking, Deanna Hoskins, about the First Step Act, which was really lauded as the, this major uh, progressive reform, and some said a surprisingly progressive reform, given the conservative nature of the Trump administration. Um, but you had some serious critiques of it. Um, and, and I do, and I want to move past that. But one of the biggest critiques I had about the First Step Act being a person who was the senior policy advisor that managed and oversaw the Second Chance Act out of the Department of Justice, we had already started having conversations around risk assessment and the biases within them. Not only did we have conversation around risk assessments, Second Chance Act had been um, studied and researched over the last 10 years. And as we all know, especially people who run programs, is that your resources are supposed to focus on people at highest risk of recidivating. What First Step Act did with the risk assessment tool is it created good time days for having participation in programs. But then it went on to say the people who can participate in those programs must score low risk on a risk assessment tool. Well, that goes against all the research in the world that the federal government had at the time, right? Of saying where your resources should go. And when black and brown people consider all ways to score high risk simply based on how our communities are over-policed, how our schools have more law enforcement than we do social workers, um, and the static questions on a risk assessment tool, you were outright excluding the most marginalized, most oppressed community from even accessing programs within correctional facilities to get the good time. So that was my biggest critique, which goes back to why our roadmap acts for a moratorium until more research can be done on risk assessment let me, tools. Let me ask you about risk assessment tools because they were implemented largely to uh, eliminate the subjectivity of 
folks on the bench, of judges mm-hmm. who were uh, a applying sentences in disproportionate manners in uh, and and so forth and this was to help take some of the guesswork and remove some of the biases that might be the implicit biases that might be present however it sounds like what you're saying is that the the, the tools themselves have these biases built in so you think about who attached the scores to the bias to the tools mm-hmm. probably white Caucasian academia right who certain things matter to them without understanding how communities are, you know, policed, how when you ask me questions, so, and and I always use myself as an example. I can be president of the United States, but there are certain things about my life I can never change, right? I can never change the fact that I was arrested five or six times. I can never change the facts that I violated probation when I was under correctional control. I can never change the fact that I, you know, may have dropped out of school in the 10th grade. Those are the static questions on a risk assessment tool that is attached. The only way you start to reduce your level, your score, is as you age for an individual. So those are the dynamic. Those are the things that move is your age. Those are static questions that I could never change, which always for black and brown. So let's talk about me and you, two different people, Mm -hmm. man, grow up in the same city. Our teenage son steals our car. We both call the police. The police finds your car and your kid. They park your car, take your kid to the station, call you to come pick him up. The police find my kid in my car. My car gets impounded. My kid goes to juvie hall and I have to go to court to get him out. Now, both of our kids end up in prison. When they go to do the risk assessment tool, your kid has no static questions because he never made it to juvie hall. My kid already has points against him because he was in juvie hall, same police department, but we know they respond to us totally different. That is a great example. And it's hard to argue with that. I was, as you were saying before about violating probation, um, I, I think people, there are people who will hear, oh, she violated probation. Well, then, you know, anyone who violates probation deserves to go to, to, to go back to jail. Um, but I don't think a lot of people really understand what's involved in probation. Can you describe actually what probation involves and how that can get sometimes in the way of trying to rebuild your own life? So, of course, definitely pro- probation is a community supervision and accountability for whatever the crime is you committed. But there are conditions of probation that must be met. So when a person violates probation in any way, you're saying the various conditions on that probation. So here in Ohio, Hamilton County, being late to an appointment, not making curfew, actually failing a urinalysis test, um, not maintaining a job. And part of my sentence was to maintain a job, regain custody of my children and not use drugs, right? And, And I think I brought this up to you in our conversation. I had already violated probation when I was sentenced to probation in front of the judge, right? Because when the judge sentenced me to probation and said, don't use drugs, I was literally in court high under the influence. So I was already a violation when I walked out of the courtroom. But people don't understand that those violations, so I had a drug problem. I didn't commit a new crime. I had a drug problem that nobody even addressed in any kind of way. Um, And when I failed the urinalysis test, It was a one-way ticket, pass, go. Don't collect your 200, you're going to jail. Still without anyone asking, she failed a drug test. Does this person deserve to go to prison 
because they failed a drug test or do they deserve to get drug treatment to address the underlying cause of even their criminal activity, right? Again, one of the things I learned when I went to work at the federal government is the inability for drug courts and specialty courts to service black and brown communities. They were very low numbers. Caucasian communities were having better access to diversions from felony convictions than black and brown people. And it was because of all the way they were recruiting, it, um, some of the things that were going to it. But I remember sharing with my colleagues, I never was offered drug court upon arrest. It, it just, it went straight to the crime. No one says, why are you committing this crime, Deanna? And had they actually identified that, that there was a drug addiction for 10 years, I may have been even diverted from the felony conviction to get drug treatment. There's a, a thing happening in the world today, in American society today, where a recognition that the crime bills of the past, the three strikes and you're out, the war on drugs, a, a reassessment of all of that history in which, uh, in which it, doesn't, it comes out not looking particularly good, right? Like a bad set of policy decisions or a set of bad policy decisions, I should say. And, um, and I wonder if the, in the same circumstances, if the same circumstances were to occur today, a younger Deanna Hoskins appearing in that, in, in that courtroom, would you be offered, do you think you'd be offered the diversion program today? I, I think it would be more of an assessment of me at pretrial upon arrest in mm -hmm. some jurisdictions, right? I, I do wonder how many people are getting offered that, but what we still see, and I'm just going to be honest, where I stay, Hamilton County, Cincinnati is different from Cleveland and Columbus and Akron, let's just be honest. Um, you know, we're, we're fighting bail reform right here with our own prosecutors, right? So what that shows me and what I've shared with advocates in Cincinnati is if our prosecutor who is elected is not in supportive of pretrial, the presumption of innocence, that's a problem because that's all bail is, is to remain, we actually ensure your return to court, right? But there's this presumption of innocence. So when you say, would I have had that opportunity? I'm not quite sure in this city. Cleveland, probably. Columbus, maybe. But when you have a prosecutor that's even fighting bail reform or bail projects that actually allows people who have a life to continue their life until the courts find them guilty, that's a real problem. And that's, that goes not to the criminal justice system, but as advocates, that goes to us to educate our community on prosecutors work for us. So we need to be elected our prosecutor, not letting them walk in office. So Deanna Hoskins, do you believe that um, that sort of in the in the national picture, things have improved on these issues that that we're on that we're on the right that we're at the beginning of the right track? Or do you feel that some of these that some of these reforms these are simply piecemeal and not enough? So I'll give you a prime example. Today is the first day that Juneteenth has been recognized as a national holiday, right? Mm -hmm. And as black people, we should be happy. But how can we be happy on what Juneteenth stands for? And there is an exception clause in the 13th Amendment that still allows for legalized slavery within prison labor. So tomorrow we're kicking off an end the exception clause um, campaign across the country focusing on the, um, the federal government, which is part of our roadmap as well, we know Colorado has already ended that exception clause in their state. And so we have state level campaigns and we're launching a national campaign tomorrow. 
So, but what it reminds me of is during a time of unrest, um, you have elected officials who come together to symbolically give black people something. And while I, I commend Ms. Opal Lee, who's been pushing for Juneteenth to be a national holiday for all these years, we're still not free, so we really can't celebrate. You know, people will say, well, what took Congress so long? It, nothing took them so long. They were first to do it based on what happened last year. So it's really symbolic. I, I, we appreciate it, but we're still not free. And the reason I, I say that is the John Lewis Voting Act. On the same day that the president signed Juneteenth into law, our Congress dismantled the voting law and pulled formerly incarcerated people out of there. Yeah, they left gerrymandering in. So you got to follow every piece of it to actually see what is really being given. And what we saw last year is what the history has shown us. Every time we think we got something, we, we move through society. And then all of a sudden, 15, 20 years, it combusts and we hit the streets. We demand change and they throw us crumbs. I've been sharing with advocates, we cannot take our foot off the gas pedal because we're not taking crumbs anymore, right? We want true liberation. You gave us Juneteenth as a holiday, fine. Now I need you to have the courage to end the exception clause of the 13th to totally dismantle slavery. On top of that, I need you to restore our voting rights. <laughs> I'm going to read the text of the 13th Amendment here uh, so that everybody knows what we're talking about. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Um, so it's that clause, that except as, pun as a punishment for crime, which uh, continues to allow for the use of uh, prison labor. Mm-hmm. And, and guess who's the biggest consumer? The government. They make our license plates, right? They actually run the prisons. Most people who actually have never worked in a prison don't realize, yeah, you got correctional officers, you got case managers, you got unit managers. But who cuts the grass, who does the landscape, who does the laundry, who does the cooking in the kitchen, who transports the patients back and forth to the infirmary, who cleans the infirmary, are the individuals who live there. So that's why when, if you ever knew someone working in a prison, they hate it when the prison went on lockdown because that meant all staff had to work in the kitchen just to feed the compound. So the government itself is the biggest user and utilizer of prison slavery. Slavery. So there is a, um, there's a, a, you you have spoken to a distinction between uh, policy work and policy advocacy between policy advocacy work and programmatic work. Just Leadership USA focuses on policy advocacy, and there are other organizations, like Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries, which mm -hmm. we've mentioned before, that does programmatic work helping returning citizens reintegrate into their communities um, and helping to prepare them not to recidivate. Mm -hmm. Why is the policy work so important? There's a lot of this that's very intuitive, but I want to ask you to kind of unpack it. So, and I think you'll see that from Charles C. work, right? Charles created this unique program of people returning to the community to assist senior citizens in some way. But there were some people who had certain crimes that couldn't be in those jobs. So there are other job uh, markets that people with certain convictions can be in. The policy is what is stopping how people reintegrate and become successful. 
So you can have a program all day focused on workforce development, work on, focused on getting housing, and people always run into barriers based on crimes that their clients or the people they're serving have actually um, encountered in some kind of way. Uh, and I've always asked the question, um, programs, and I just, and I'm gonna be honest, I don't think reentry is programs. I think reentry is a process and programs help people navigate that process, right? Around how to get to sustainable, self-fulfilling, productive members of society. Policies block some of that things. Um, policies block how people have access. One of our legislation is the lifetime ban on drug offense um, for SNAP TANF benefits. Yeah, Ohio has waived out of it, but if we get a governor who wants to rescind that waiver, everybody in the state of Ohio that has been convicted of a drug offense will no longer be eligible for TANF and SNAP benefits, right? But that's a policy that's kind of, if you're a person who's been convicted of a crime, that's something lingering over your head every time your elected official changes. Um, so policy supports programming that's actually helping people reintegrate. They go together. It's not an either or. You have to address both because the more policies that could not be harmful to people, it gives better access to people who are reintegrating and the programs that are uh, assisting them. What are you hearing from federal legislators and state legislators around the country about these items on your agenda? It seems to me that there there has been this shift. I spoke before about the reassessment of the of the war on drugs, uh, the understanding of the dynamics that 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 led to mass incarceration of black and brown uh, men in particular, but but impact disproportionately impacting black and brown communities, uh, both men and women and juveniles. Um, it does seem as if there is more of an appetite to consider serious policy reforms that some would characterize as progressive, things that would never have been considered even by Democrats 20 or 30 years ago. I totally agree with you. Um, I guess my critique of that, you know, where the sentencing a juvenile to life without parole has been determined unconstitutional, right? And we're, we're seeing... 50 and 60 year old men who were sentenced at 15 to 16 being released, especially in Pennsylvania. We're seeing people like William Underwood who spent 33 years for a first time offense around drug trafficking in a federal system being released. There, there's an appetite, but there's slow movement. And my argument is, is slow movement to undo it, but it was real quick movement to do it, right? Uh, you stripped our liberty, you, you, you tore up our communities real quick with the 94 crime bill, then came back with the 96 bill, which actually started removing access to basic human needs, such as food, shelter, clothing, and all of that. But you're real slow. And even when you want to give us our liberation and our freedom, you want to piecemeal it to us, right? And that's why our, our roadmap is very bold. I don't want you to, I, we didn't go into the 94 crime bill and start pulling out pieces for you to fix. We said, repeal the 94 crime bill. Don't piecemeal our freedom to try to fix the 94 crime bill. Repeal it to undo in whole as you took it in whole, right? While you said you have that, you have, people don't want to lose their political foothold. People don't, people still, people are, career politicians, right? And, and they still, 
I can't appear too soft in this area. But but I want to challenge that, Dan, because I, if it's people over politics, it's really not about your political position. It's about human dignity and seeing everyone as a human. And if the policy that you're implementing is dehumanizing a segment of population in any kind of way. So it, it, it does. Um, when you say, except with the 13th Amendment clause, you're actually saying this dehumanizing thing of slavery that was abolished is still okay in this one situation. And when you look at the historical aspect of incarceration, it resembles slavery. You're in a cage. You, you can be put in solitary confinement. You are forced to work or you're put in a cage, right? You, you remember people being out on the field, refusing to work, getting beat and being put segregated or whatever. Prison replicates slavery in every aspect down to the uniform, to how many showers you could take, what you're going to eat, when you could talk on the phone. And not only that, not only is it still allowing for the slavery aspect around prison labor, we're also going to let corporations profit off of you as well, even when you talk to your family. And now we're even moving to 100% video visitation to even remove family unification. So you've, you've just done a little bit of shorthand about, about the, the telecom community, co corporations making money on, on collect calls or calls from, from detention facilities, which is, and then that connects to the whole world of fines, fees, and bail. And I just want to point out, I just want to say again, we're talking with Deanna Hoskins. She's president of Just Leadership USA. It's an eight-year-old advocacy organization, um, national advocacy organization, working on, on reform, criminal justice reform, and reform to laws and, and policies regarding uh, communities, uh, community members, our neighbors who are under incarceration, and our neighbors who return uh, from incarceration back to the community. And... Um, the, this is part of a series of conversations we've been doing over the last few years. We, we talked with the, the Bail Project about a year ago. We've talked with others about fines, fees, and, and, and other, other aspects to this, this whole kind of Gordian knot of issues that, that really do need to be untangled if we are to be a more just society. Um, and if you have a question for Deanna Hoskins, please text it to 330-541-5794. If you're on Twitter, you can tweet that question to at the City Club, and we will work it in. This is the City Club Friday Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop. So let's get to some questions from the audience. Deanna, are you ready? Yeah. I know it. you are. Um, so statistics show that a number of incarcerated uh, individuals have been charged in connection with marijuana laws, but in recent months there's been a legalization of marijuana in many states. Considering this change, what do you think is the next step in terms of resentencing these individuals? Thank you for that question. And we are um, a number one leader around the MORE Act being reintroduced on a federal, um, federal level. And here's our thing. Those individuals who have been convicted of marijuana now that it's becoming legal actually have to have those sentences expunged. I, I don't we don't think there should be a resentencing because it's no longer illegal. And, you know, here's my cliche around that. There is no way you cannot expunge our records and then create laws to allow us to participate in the economic viability of that market. If you look across the states that are legalizing marijuana, the first people they exclude is people who've been convicted of marijuana or drug trafficking in the world. And I always say, we created the market. Not only did we create the market, we've generated to show the, the actual demand for this. So there is no way 
that we could sit back and watch a, uh, a society that creates something for white men to get rich off of for what black men have been going to prison for. You have to allow us to operate. And that was one of the things that I do commend um, Governor Cuomo for in New York when I was living in New York. He would not sign the marijuana legalization because it excluded formerly incarcerated people. And he was not willing to sign it until they were included to be able to participate in that economic market to be business owners as well. From a very practical standpoint. So no, I don't think there should be a resentencing. I think there should be an expungement. An expungement. I was just going to say that from a very practical standpoint, those uh, people who have been involved uh, on a more long-term basis with the market for marijuana would seem to me to be experts in the field whose, um, whose, you know, whose practical experience ought to be uh, sought after. Uh, another question for you from one of our listeners. I'd like to ask Ms. Hoskins about mobilizing the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission of the United States Department of Labor to educate employers about the guidance issued in 2012. This is a very specific question, but I'm sure you can answer it. About the guidance issued in 2012 regarding employers conducting an individualized assessment of job applicants instead of a blanket instead of blanket no hire policies for people with criminal records. In my work with returning citizens, I found too many employers are still not conducting individualized assessments. Wow, thank you for that. So part of that falls on us too as advocates in the community. Um, totally agree with you, understand I was hired within the federal government based on that policy, right? My knowledge, skills, and abilities got me to the interview. And it was an evaluation of my crime versus what I have done in the past. What I saw when I was a part of the Federal Interagency Reentry Council was when people get the courage to identify and report those employers who are still utilizing blanket policies, those employers are paying out, settling out of court. And what most people don't know, employers like BMW, Family Dollar, have settled out of court for utilizing those blanket policies. But we as advocates have to educate, which is why Just Leadership focuses on educating advocates, because it's intoxicating to jump on a bandwagon of a topic. But do people really understand the details of the topic, right? Do they understand that your criminal record may or may not be blocking you from a job? At what point do you know it's blocking you from a job and it was your criminal record? Um, once the conditional offer is there, are jobs still listing their jobs saying no felony convictions, no criminal backgrounds? If so, that's a violation of the Civil Rights Act within itself, just in the job posting from Department of Labor. But are we pulling together to start building and collectively filing complaints against those employers and we don't. It's unfortunate, and I'll say this. As black and brown people, we need a job. I really don't have time to start keep track of reporting people, but we have to if we want to see the system change. We have to identify those job postings that are saying no criminal backgrounds. Identify those employers who are giving us conditional job employment offers and then rescinding it when the background check comes and my conviction had nothing to do with the job. We have to create a portal, a, a point of contact. It could be the state or the um, reentry office within your county has to be the reporting. Who's going to be the portal to collect that information so that we can start filing those federal complaints against those employers around their processes because they're actually discriminating. We just haven't pulled it together because once it reaches the federal government, we're seeing where some of those companies are settling out of court because they're being called on the carpet for it. 
I, that is a, a structural issue that seems very, very difficult to uh, to address because, as I mean, you just pointed out, I'm just kind of like digesting what you've just said, but as you've pointed out, the it requires the job seeker to file a complaint. And as you, if you're seeking a job and you don't already have a job, you don't have time. And if you do have a job, you don't have time for that either. You're just sort of moving on to the to to try to find an opportunity that that will work. And that's what has allowed some of the practices and the harms before us, because we're in need of employment. You didn't hire me. I really don't have time to complain about why you didn't hire me because I need to go find the employer who's going to hire me, right? Because I need a paycheck as soon as possible. But but we haven't built coalitions, reentry coalitions that empower and support our community so that we can start building and trans transferring this information so that we can start building and collecting our power, right? Part of um, building power in community is educating the community to understand who is violating them, who is violating their civil rights and having the power to call them out in it. But again, we've been so oppressed. Do I even have time to report back to you of, hey, I went to this job and they didn't hire me because of my criminal background that just took 20 minutes. I could have been on another interview. Mm. So, so how do we set those processes up? And that's where it, the responsibility comes on us. I always say, especially with um, reentry programs that focus on workforce, what are some of the questions you're having job seekers, like three questions after every interview, after every conversation that they can fill out to actually start talking to their job coach with, we could start collecting some of that information that way, right? We have to create the system because the system is definitely not going to be created for us. Another question for you, Deanna Hoskins. Uh, how, do you have a comment about fair chance housing laws that attempt to remove barriers to rental housing that are related to criminal history? I do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, housing is a basic human need. What does my criminal background have to do with me having safe access to safe housing? And I think a lot of times people exclude people who have criminal background as being qualified or deserving to be safe in some kind of way. So I'll tell you what we did do here in Cincinnati. And I know Cleveland was ahead of the game because um, we follow suit with Cleveland, even with our housing authority. When I first became the director of reentry in Cincinnati, our housing authority had a policy that you couldn't apply for housing till five years after completion of your sentence. And I remember going to write, I remember going to their board meeting and I, I wanted to ask the question of the board and the director of the housing authority to help me understand. I served five years in prison. I'm sentenced to five years parole. You're telling me I then have to be five years homeless in the community, total of 10, because I did five on parole. Now I got to be off another five before I could get housing. And nobody understood what I was talking about. They was like, no, that's not what we're saying. That's exactly what this rule says. This exact. And once I was able to explain that to the commission and the director, we were able to change that standard operating procedure back to three years from conviction, right? So now that same person serving five years in prison just became eligible for housing after their third year in prison can actually apply to be on a waiting list before they get out. But how do we move that into the private market of landlords, right? To not discriminate. I'm a landlord myself. 
and I ask myself the question all the time, what crimes am I biased about that I wouldn't rent to? And, and I have to be honest about that, right? What, what am I, what am, who am I not comfortable renting to or am I not comfortable? That's the chance you take as a landlord, but I think we have to have the practices that don't allow. You know, one of the biggest things everybody's gonna say is arson and individuals convicted of a sex offense, right? Because your house is in a community and you definitely don't want nobody to burn your house down, right? But in reality, look at Ohio. Um, we haven't identified sex offenses. We've put predators into the same category as a, a level one, right? So when you say sex offender to anyone, for me, I remember there was a time I immediately went, you had to either violate a child or harm a woman. That's all I gave you credit for with that label. Once I started working in the Department of Corrections and realized a, a college student public drunkenness actually out in a park actually could get this label or different things, I then started to realize how the system and the policies cause more harm on us being successful because we put this overall label on people that's going to scare people around housing and different things. So I think we have to institute fair hiring, um, housing policies, but I also, I'm realistic. There's going to be some limitations, and then that's where we have to go back to the policy level at the state of how you even identify and classify people who have convicted cer committed certain crimes. Another question for you, and I'm glad this came up because I wanted to ask it myself. Um, could you talk about your own journey? How did you move from recovery to this advocacy role? Um, so, of course, I did not wake up one day or get released and walk out of a correctional facility and was like, I'm going to become an advocate. No, I just wanted a job like everyone else. I wanted to get my children back and I wanted to build a life, whatever that life was going to look like. And what I found out before I was arrested, um, again, I suffered with a drug addiction for over 15 years, um, addicted to crack cocaine, lost custody of my children, and ended up serving time in a correctional-based facility here in Hamilton County. And one of the things I tell people is I didn't go to jail. I was not convicted, and I didn't have skills. I, I, I had skills. At the time, data entry was um, popular. I took it in high school in a vocational class. And it was, it's actually the employment that sustained and supported my drug addiction. But when I was released with that felony conviction, I could no longer work in that field because that field at the time, that's when we were still writing checks. And those checks, remember at night, your check got processed through the data processing. That's what data entry was. I had a theft charge. I could not go work in a financial institution again, even in data entry. So now my, my felony conviction had created a barrier to the skill set that I had to be able to be employable. And I remember I applied at this one job. They literally, based on my experience, wanted me to be a supervisor um, in a check cashing, in a check processing center. And when the lady found out I had this felony conviction, she was floored. And, I, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm talking to her. And she's like, I'm sorry, we can't hire you. And I remember asking her, because I had to go see my probation officer. I'm still on probation again, and here I can't find a job, and they're going to violate me again because part of my conditions is to have a job. And when I asked her for that policy in writing, she couldn't produce it. And I knew at that moment I was living and facing a, a system that was dependent on the person who was interviewing me. 
So every job interview I went on, I asked for a copy of the policy and they couldn't produce it. It wasn't in writing. So I started challenging it and I started challenging it publicly as a discriminatory practice. Of, and I remember going back to my parole officer and was like, how do you fight a system that has been empowered to determine what policy they're going to use based on a person with a criminal background? just based on whoever's sitting in that desk and in that position of power, right? So I remember the next interview, and I like to share this story because I'm like, what did I just do? The next interview, I'm sitting there, and I didn't walk into this interview with, oh my God, I need this job. I walked into this interview of, I'm gonna challenge this, and I'm gonna cross my legs as if I'm empowered to challenge this. So, and it was at Fifth Third Bank in Cincinnati. Now, I know I can't work at a bank I done been convicted of a theft, but I needed to know if this policy at one of the largest banks in Cincinnati existed on paper. Make it through the interview, make it through the second interview. Um, and we started talking, I say, oh, by the way, I've been convicted of a felony theft. And she was like, you can't work here. And I was like, why not? She was like, our policy won't allow it. I said, can you show it to me in writing? And they didn't have the HR policy in writing. And I remember sitting back in my chair, crossing my legs saying, so you're telling me that you're pushing a policy that doesn't exist based on how you feel about a person with a criminal background. And she said, no, it's just the way it's always been. I said, based on what and based on who who made the decision is who I need to talk to. Nobody could answer my questions. And I knew at that moment, if I didn't fight for myself and expose the harms that were being done to us or to me, because um, I, I didn't think about y'all at the time. It was just all about me. I just need a job. Uh, if I can't expose the harms being done to me, um, I wasn't going to have a shot in this. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't want to work in a restaurant. I didn't want to clean and mop hallways. I had a skill set. And just because I had made this mistake, is that what is what everyone was funneling me into? So my policy, my advocacy started with advocating for myself. And then I would talk to someone else and they'll be like, well, this happened to me. And I'll be like, well, this is what you do. You go challenge them. <laughs> you do this. And it just started to build from there. Um, I, I didn't. I, I was not trying to save y'all. I was just trying to save me. We are talking with Deanna Hoskins. That is such a story. Deanna Hoskins is the president of Just Leadership USA. They advocate for policy reform in the areas of criminal justice and reentry, community reentry, and so forth. If you have a question for her, is your City Club Friday Forum. So this part of the program is powered by your questions. Uh, you should text your question to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club. We will work it in. Uh, Deanna Hoskins, um, collateral sanctions, and you might have to explain what that refers to, collateral sanctions not only considerably shrink the number of jobs available to Ohioans with a conviction, it also shrinks the pool of workers available to employers. With such demand for employees, specifically in service industry sectors today, has there been more of a push to remove these barriers to jobs? I will say yes, that is where you First get, of all, explain what collateral sanctions, what that refers to, please. So collateral consequences are the unintended consequences that goes with a felony conviction. And I always like to say when the judge hits the gavel and sentences you to incarceration, 
there are other things that actually come along with that gavel. It's going to identify where you can work at, where you can live at, some of the things you have access to. Can you even accompany your children on field trips and chaperoning them once you're convicted of a felony offense, once um, you're back in the community? So those are the unintended consequences that no one was aware of that this criminal background was going to give a person. Um, I think there is an elimination of collateral consequences in certain things, and that goes back to that original question around the EEOC's um, regulation or memo around what employers should do, how an employer should evaluate a person with a criminal background. They definitely should have, the EEOC said they should use the assessment to either identify the nature of the person's crime related to the job, how long it has been, and what that person has done since then. You know. What this is reminding me of is I always challenge um, the judge who sentenced me. I always question him about if you truly don't believe in corrections and rehabilitation, one, why the hell are you sentencing people there to get rehabilitated and corrected? Because only for them to come out and nobody wants to give them a shot as if they've been corrected or rehabilitated. So I'm having no understanding of what the sentence was supposed to do if it wasn't to be a punishment only. And not only is it gonna be a punishment while you're serving time, it's gonna be a punishment when you come out because society is gonna say you can't work here, you can't live here. So I, I, I'm always questioning, why do we call this system Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation when nobody believes in that who sentenced us there? And our laws damn sure don't believe in it because it holds us hostage once we're released. Another question for you, too, here, uh, Deanna, to circle back on the question uh, about expunging or resentencing marijuana convictions. First off, the listener writes, I don't think marijuana convictions should ever have been as strict as they are or were or have been. In fact, I don't think marijuana should ever have been made illegal. But what do you say to proponents of that, of illegalization, who believe that those individuals that committed the crime during the time it was illegal still committed a crime knowingly at that time and should serve that sentence out because of that fact? Well, what we also know is that we have people who are serving life sentences for marijuana. Um, and we know people who committed murder who don't get a life sentence. So one, marijuana laws were so harsh, which go back in history, alcohol prohibition laws were actually very strict until we made it legal, right? Again, whatever black people are making money off of illegally, another population to find a way to make it legally and become rich and block us out from accessing it. We're seeing it right now with marijuana. Um, those proponents he, here as an advocate, I don't fight every, everybody. One, everything is not a fight. So as an advocate, one of the things that we teach or that we know is that people are on a communication scale from one to five. Ones I'm preaching to the choir. They, they, they're on board, they get it. Fives, I'm never gonna change their mind. So guess what I'm gonna do? Never gonna waste my time on them. My time is to focus on the three and the fours who are straddling the fence. And actually keeping that focus, you will waste more time focusing on fives who I don't care what you do, you will never change their mind. So why be the truck stuck in the mud spinning your tires? Waste your time on the threes and fours 
that actually are straddling the fence to get them over to your um, twos and ones and keep it moving. You have to know where your fight is. I, I, I don't, everybody's entitled to their opinion and everybody comes to this table based on their experience. And my job is to respect the position that you have. As a leader, I have to respect where you are and I have to move on. I don't have to argue with you because just as you believe, I have a belief too. This is my thing. It's something else that you do. Um, and I think as an advocate in this field and as a leader, once you identify how to respect everybody's position, you get much further because even that opposition, while they may not agree with you, they'll respect you and what you do. Deanna Hoskins, final question for you uh, from our audience. Um, what can allies do to help to support I love this question because I don't need allies. I need accomplices. What's the difference? And what, so what an accomplice is, an ally is just someone who's going to speak and yell Black Lives Matter as well in the street with me, right? But what an accomplice is going to do is kick open the doors of City Hall where I can't access and bring me with them, right? An accomplice is going to kick open that door and actually bring me into that room with them and say, I need you to talk to these advocates who have lived experience on this issue. Accomplices work to get to the accomplishment of what you're trying to do. Just Leadership says directly impacted people have to be at the table of policy decision, not in a performative way. Don't put us on your board to say, I have a person with lived experience. Have a person with lived experience in a leadership decision-making position that their voice is seen and heard. Allies are going to put on a t-shirt with me and walk down the middle of the street with me. Again, accomplices are going to walk up on the stage, grab the mic, and bring it back to me so that I can speak. Do you have accomplices in Congress right now? I do. <laughs> you, you, you have it. Um, and, and I shared this with an advocate yesterday. Most of you may have heard of Desmond Mead. Desmond led the um, restoration of 1.4 million people with criminal backgrounds voting in Florida. And we were talking about H.R. 1. He was in D.C. yesterday, and he called me because of the dismantling of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that had happened by Democrats. And we were talking and I said, you know, sometimes I think we've been addressing this wrong. And he said, what do you mean? I said, we're pushing for legislation that always puts us in this battle, right? You know, they, they give, we take, we take, they give. You, you do this back and forth. And I met this lady who's the most humblest, quietest person in Congress that nobody even mentions her name. And once I met her and some, a lobbyist, an accomplice introduced me to her, I found out she's the most powerful person in Congress. So I started looking around states and I was like, the person who sits in these seats in the states are the most powerful, but the less heard. So this lady explained to me from a congressional perspective of, Deanna, you know, you can always write legislation and get into a fight on the House floor. But one thing that always has to happen at a federal and a state level is government has to be funded, right? It's like, yeah, the budget has to be passed, right? She says, so why not put your language into appropriations that fund the government and just get your shit passed? way versus going into a fight with everybody else you didn't just Sorry. say that you didn't just say I that know. 
<laughs> well, Deanna, 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 we're out of time. We're out of time, but you're, <laughs> that lesson is very important, and that's exactly what's happened in Ohio with uh, with with legislation heading into the getting into the budget. Um, but please stay on. Uh, please stay on. I want to talk to you after we're done. I have to wrap this up right now. Deanna Hoskins, what a pleasure to have you on the City Thank Club you. Forum. It's been wonderful. Thank you also to our listeners and all of you for joining us to talk about criminal justice reform with Deanna Hoskins, president of Just Leadership USA. As I said at the outset, our forum is the inaugural Charles R.C. Forum on Reentry, presented in partnership with Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries. And our forum today is also part of the criminal justice series that we present in partnership with the, with the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. Big thanks to you and members and sponsors and donors who uh, support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. We have a bunch coming up next week. We also have some coming up in person on Public Square starting on Tuesday, July 6th. We hope you'll join us for that. And we'll be back in person at the City Club later on in July. You can find out more. Keep track at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.